Dr. Robert Pearl has spent his life in medicine, most recently 18 years as executive director and CEO of Kaiser Permanente's medical group in California and president and CEO of its Mid-Atlantic group. But it was the death of his father and a simple medical miscommunication that prompted him to look long and hard at an American medical system that doesn't always deliver bang for its billions of bucks. In his book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, Pearl lays out his four ways through the morass of American medical practice. Integrated, not fractured care, a flat fee capitated payment system instead of pay per treatment, embracing mobile and video medical technology, and most of all, that care be led by doctors themselves. He also makes his case as a professor at Stanford's medical and business schools, and right here. Let me take a classic American playground taunt and turn it around. The line is, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? So if the United States is so rich and so smart, why aren't we healthier? This is exactly why I wrote Mistreated, because we spend 50% more than any other nation on the globe, and our results are in the lower half. And the reason is because the American healthcare system is broken. It most closely re- uh, reflects a 19th century cottage industry. It's fragmented with doctors scattered across most communities, hospitals in every town. It's paid on a piecemeal basis. We call it fee-for-service. It uses technology from the last century. You'd never bank someplace if you couldn't access information on your account 24 by 7. But if you want to get your radiology results, your laboratory results, you'd have to call the doctor's office between 9 and 5, Monday to Friday, or go there. You can't use video. All the modern tools are not available. When you say our results as a country are in the lower half, can you get specific? We're last in the uh, world when it comes to Life expectancy, a girl in Seoul, Korea, uh, being born now, has on average a life expectancy of 90. The same girl in the United States, 83, seven years fewer. Uh, We're second to last in terms of uh, childhood mortality, colon cancer. Half the colon cancer deaths in the United States are preventable with proper screening. And I don't mean necessarily a colonoscopy. It's what's called a fit test which is basically done in the privacy of bathroom once a year, five minutes, no bowel prep required. You do it every year for 10 years. It's just as good as a colonoscopy. And yet, across the station, it's done 50 to 60% of the time. The best medical groups do it 90% of the time. Americans are dying unnecessarily. Half a million people die every year from either failures in prevention or from medical errors, like my father, or from avoidable complications of chronic illness that simply were not addressed. We value intervention over prevention. We value the uh, newest advance over the things that are tried and true. You make a distinction between malpractice and mistreatment, which can simply result from haste or error. So you're right. I think most physicians are dedicated, smart, hardworking, knowledgeable. That's not the big problem. So I'll give you an example again. My father, he is someone, He was someone who had tremendous energy. He slept four hours a night until one day he got tired and he had to have his spleen taken out because he had a hemolytic anemia. 
Now, he spent half his time in New York and half his time in Florida. His doctors in New York knew he needed to have the vaccine, the pneumococcal vaccine, to prevent the complication that often follows uh, removal of the spleen. The doctors in Florida knew that he had to have that same exact vaccine, but they each thought the other had given it. And that's the system. That's the lack of a integrated, comprehensive electronic health record. If he had had that, he would have gotten the vaccine. He didn't die because of malpractice. He died because of a broken system. If you were able to wave your magic stethoscope and redesign the healthcare system, what of what of it would you keep, and what of it would you jettison? What what I would jettison or replace is the fragmented fee-for-service, uh, out-of-date technology leadershipness, leadership, lack of leadership that we have today. I'd replace it with an integrated system, groups of physicians and hospitals working together as one, paid in a prepaid or capitated way, using the most modern electronic health record along with the most modern mobile devices, things like uh, video, uh, secure email, and I'd put it all inside of a leadership structure with physicians, and I would have multiple groups competing to provide the best value making the information available and transparent to patients so that they can make the best choice for themselves and their families. So, the main thing, though, that I would keep, and I'm afraid we're losing it, is all of the mission-driven, wonderful spirit of American medicine that's been handed down through five millennia. I think we're seeing right now as physicians are spending almost half of their day punched over a computer trying to document things for a billing system rather than looking at the patient, being able to communicate around the things that sit in place. We're asking physicians to squeeze more and more into every day with less and less time. I think we're reaching a breaking point where one of two things will happen. If we don't address the concerns and transform American medicine, what we're going to see is that we're going to devolve into a two-tier system, not the two-tier today with the poor and everyone else, but the middle class and the Medicare patient not able to get access similar to the uh, uh, Medicaid patient of uh, today, or we're going to see disruption. I think if we don't do something about American medicine, the system will simply disintegrate, dissolve, and will run the risk of being disrupted as Kodak did. So what's the resistance to adding technology when technology seems to be one of the great drivers in American healthcare? Well, today, what you're describing, the ability to get paid to do a video visit for most physicians uh, doesn't exist. It could happen, it's just that it doesn't exist. And I think part of why it doesn't exist is that the insurance coverage is a concern that doctors will just generate more and more and more visits, whether they're needed or not, in order to be able to bill for them. A doctor's mission should be not just to prevent death, but also to improve the quality of life. That's why you treat a disease, you win, you lose. You treat a person, I guarantee you, you'll win. I was struck by your point in the book that the medical system is driven by fear, and it's not necessarily the patient's fear of pain or death. What happens is that part of our brain, the reward center, the fear center, we call it lighting up. It becomes activated. And within fractions of a nanosecond, the perceptual side changes. 
And so medicine is filled with reward and fear. The problem is that in American medicine, that same brain process leads doctors and patients to do things that don't make good sense when you look at it through the lens of objective reality. So as an example, uh, you know, I live in uh, Silicon Valley. In between San Jose and San Francisco, there's 10 hospitals doing heart surgery, three of which do fewer than 300 cases a year. I mean, it's at least 65 days a year when the team's going to be there and available with nothing to do. It's hard to imagine you're going to get great results when you're doing fewer than, less than one case a day. And certainly the cost is going to be much higher. You take this, the hospital administrators, you put them in one of my classes at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, they'll immediately say, bring the three together, close two of the services, and have one service that does eight or 900 a year, a, high vo- a much higher volume service. But what they know is they'll lose their job. What they know is their hospital will lose their revenue. So this fear of loss, how powerful loss is compared to gain, as I talk about sepsis, which is an infection that is now the leading cause of death amongst hospitalized patients, systemic infection, the same problem that my father died from. The fear there is that what we know is that half of the people who come to a hospital with sepsis are very, very sick. Everyone in the United States knows how to treat them. What a woman named Diane Craig, one of my associates at Kaiser Santa Clara, found is that half of these patients were very sick coming in. But she also found that the other half, they were sick because otherwise they wouldn't be in a hospital, but they were not nearly as sick. And they were often younger people, sometimes with a kidney infection or a very, or maybe a mild kind of uh, pneumonia. And then they progressed rapidly over the next couple of days. That intermediate zone, no one quite knows what to do. And if you treat all the people in that intermediate zone, you're going to save lots of lives. So why is it What's the done? problem? Because... The intervention requires doing very aggressive treatment, and the physician is worried because some patients who might have lived will actually be harmed. And in the minds of a doctor, not all deaths are the same. I hate to say that that way. The ones they cause are far worse than the ones that they could have avoided. And so there's this imbalance. So rather than aggressively treat the patient, they just put them in the hospital, put them on some antibiotics, and a call a consultation. It's now no longer on their hands. It's not that the doctor intentionally wants to harm anyone. It's just that their fear of being the ones to cause the problem. Again, it's how our brains change perception. Those things that we cause, the problems we cause, the deaths we cause, are significantly greater in magnitude than the ones that we otherwise could have saved. It's also why we see intervention as being so much more valuable than prevention. You saw some of this firsthand when your father fell ill and died. My my dad survived the first acute episode that he had, but he never overcame the complications. My brother and I got called because my dad had had a bleed into his brain in Florida. And we got an airplane and we flew there. When we arrived, there was a line of doctors out the door. There was the ENT doctor who wanted to do the tracheostomy, the GI doctor who wanted to put the feeding tube in place, the neurosurgeon who wanted to take a piece of his bone from his skull to let his brain expand. And we looked at the x-ray with both physicians. We said, no, he's not going to get better. 
This is not what he wants. The next two and a half days he was in the hospital, we never saw a physician. There's no CPT code, how doctors bill for compassion. Doctors in a fee-for-service world don't get paid for coming by and comforting a family in the time of greatest grief. The system is making the lives of patients worse. And I want to add one piece. It's making the lives of doctors worse. What we see today is one in every three doctors reports being depressed. Over half of physicians said they would not tell their children to enter into medicine. There are over 400 physician suicides every year. And the reason is that medicine is becoming less and less fulfilling, and yet somehow because of the context, ask most Americans, they'll tell you, the medical care in the United States is the best in the world, even if a little expensive. Hmm. The data says exactly the opposite. How do your suggestions work when, as you pointed out in your book, about 50% of medical care costs go to 5% of people? So if you look at the 50% that go to 5% of people, you have really three groups within it. One group of people who just have a a terrible, unexpected problem. A baby is born very, very premature. But the reality is they're not going to have another baby born premature next year. There are some people who have severe disease, and the problem in that that group is that we missed the opportunity 20 or 30 years before to actually prevent them from developing those kinds of diseases. But the place that most people look are individuals with chronic disease, multiple chronic diseases, and that's where I think the approach that I'm describing will make the biggest difference. But all these patients are seeing physicians. It's just that when they see the physicians, the system is not focusing people in a way to get that best outcome. And what do I mean by that? When they're seeing people, they often have five or six doctors. Are those doctors working together as one, or are they all duplicating the same kinds of things? Are the computer systems they're using coordinated with each other, or does everyone basically have an office-based system? Is there a leadership structure? Doctors are not going to follow hospitals or insurance executives. They don't trust them. But they will follow physicians who are well-trained, who they know, and whom they respect. What other industry, what business can you think of that would function like American medicine today? Try to think of a business where you wouldn't have coordination between the people designing the products, the people servicing the products, the people selling the products, where you wouldn't have modern 21st century computing systems so that everyone had information, not just to do the care at the time, but to be able to now analyze it in order to improve performance. It just doesn't exist in most of American medicine today. I believe that the change can best happen actually through the businesses of this nation. That if the businesses said that in a certain number of years, let's say five years from now, we're not going to purchase insurance from any organization, from any doctor, from any hospital that is not integrated, where the care is not coordinated amongst the primary care, specialty care, patient care, outpatient care, where it's not paid on a capitated or prepaid basis, where they don't have the most modern electronic health record, I believe that the American healthcare system would respond and would improve. If we're able to accomplish that, then my dad's death will serve the purpose because the result will be hundreds of thousands of patients who live who otherwise would die. Dr. Robert Pearl, thank you so much. Thank you, Pat.
Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's engineered by Tim French and Todd G. Levin and edited by Levin. The music is from the NBC shows ER and St. Elsewhere and from the ABC shows Grey's Anatomy, Doogie Howser, M.D., and Ben Casey. That's Robin Williams in the 1998 Universal film Patch Adams. I am Pat Morrison. Pat Morrison.